You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Name is James, and I am glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm excited to continue in Matthew. Um, and we're kind of going, we're going to go through some, some parables and really some sayings from Jesus that can seem a little harsh, um, but I think they're really timely for us to consider uh, in our own lives. So as we begin, I don't know if you knew this about me, but last summer, I actually organized a spy team. I don't know if you knew that, but I had a spy team and I organized it. And, you know, we, you know, we were solving crime and keeping the streets of McFarland safe. That was our motto, still is our motto on this spy team. And I know some of you are like, dude, I don't think that's legit. Let me just tell you something, though. All of us on this spy team, we're still in operation today. We all have code names, you know, obviously, to, you know, disguise. We all have walkie-talkies. You know, we clip them to our waistband because, you know, we need to communicate to each other. Um, and we all, we all have guns, Nerf, nerf guns, um, strapped to our bikes, uh, obviously for defense, you know, if needed. Uh, and we all have special powers because we have to have special effects when we do special things as a spy team. All, I'm just saying, we are a spy team that you would not want to encounter on the streets of McFarland. So we live in a neighborhood with lots of kids, and we love it. And if you were to come into our neighborhood at any time in the afternoon, you would probably see this gang of like seven, eight, nine kids and me patrolling the streets on our bikes, keeping crime at a low in McFarland and, and, and deep like in this imaginary world of like adventure and fantasy. We have great times out on the streets. Honestly, it's my own excuse to be a gigantic kid again. And for the kids who are actually our kids, just to be outside and to spend time uh, together. But I say all that just to say, like, like any group or team of kids, there's like this never-ending banter on the streets of who is in charge. Who's the leader? They're all similar age, except for me. And so there's this question of who's in charge. Is it, is it Spy Eagle, who's usually the one in charge? Is it Spy Eagle? Or maybe perhaps Spy Shadow, who at times, you know, comes to authority. Or, or is it Spy Unicorn? That's Lucy. She, she's Spy Unicorn. And here's what's interesting. Just two weeks ago, the kids decided it was time to vote on a new spy leader. And so they all huddled up on the street together, very diplomatic of them, and each kid voted. They voted for who they thought should be the spy team leader. And they go around the circle, right? And as you may guess, every single kid voted for themselves. (laughs) Every kid voted for themselves. Because every kid wanted to be the one calling the shots, right? On the walkie-talkie, like, hey, spy team, we need this or that. They wanted to be the ones in control, to have influence. If I'm not lying, like, I kind of want to be spy team leader, too. Right? And, and this is a cute story, and we chuckle, right? But doesn't it accurately paint a picture or a portrait of our own hearts? <laughs> that was a timely laugh. <laughs> 
that in our own life, don't we all want to call the shots to be in control, to have influence? Don't we think of ourselves as kings and queens riding around in a carriage, sitting on the throne in the throne room of our lives, having in some way like self-appointed and self-authorized that we ourselves can do and think as we please? And what I'm trying to get at in this introduction is exactly what Jesus gets after in our text as we move forward in Matthew. And it's this issue that's all about authority. Namely, that God's authority, God's authority over our lives. Meaning, what, what, what place does God and his authority have? Or, or what place should God's authority have over our lives? And we'll discover, as James just read, that those who should have gotten this right, that the religious leaders actually get it wrong. And those whom should have gotten this wrong, the prostitute and the tax collector, actually get it right. And see, Jesus shows his disciples then and for us now that it's not simply uh, enough to profess belief in God. It's not enough just to say, I believe in God, but the conduct of our lives must match the profession of our faith. That the conduct of our lives must match the profession of our faith. And we'll see astoundingly that Jesus commends the sinner, the repentant sinner. And he offers a very uh, uh, potent warning to the hypocritical religious individual. And our big idea is that we would recognize that rightful authority in our life necessitates a rightful response. That rightly believing about God mandates that there is a right response to our lives. So let's just pray one more time. Lord, Father, we come again to you pleading for your help, realizing that we need you to, to open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your words. Spirit, prune back the hedges of any unbelief, doubt, or fear. Would you speak to us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, our direction is simpler. We want, we want to see right authority. We want to see the right authority in our life. And then we want to see the right response. We want to see the right authority and then our right response. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 21, first starting in verse 23, we'll, we'll pick up in the story here. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. They came to Jesus as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And I know as we read this and, and this question and how it kind of comes across to us today, that this seems like kind of a harmless question, Right? But we need to remember two things. One, what, what has just happened in the text? And, and secondly, who are these people asking the question? So, so what has just happened as you let your eyes fall on the verses preceding this, or as you remember in the, in the last few weeks, right? Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? And all the masses of the people are coming out praising him, right? And then, and then Jesus comes into the temple, and what does he do? He overthrows the tables of the, of the money changers, right? And if you look at verse 15, look at this response of these same people, the chief priests. In verse 15, uh, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, uh, they, at the verse ends, they were indignant. They were angry. 
They were hot. Their tempers were flaring. In fact, Luke, in his gospel account, at this point in the story, if you were to read his account, after Jesus clears the temple, the chief priests actually go out of the temple and plot how to destroy him. How are they going to kill Jesus? And secondly, who are these people asking the questions? Who are these chief priests? Who are these elders? And these are kind of generic labels thrown upon these people. But chief priests are just simply the highest ruling order of priests in Jesus' day. So there's lots of priests administering, doing the administration in the service of the temple, right? But these are the priests that are over them. These are the highest ruling order of priests in Jesus' day. And who are the elders? They're just the highest ruling families within the, within the, the, um, within the clans of Israel. So every clan of Israel would have a, a ruling family, and these are the elders, the ruling priests, the ruling families, meaning these are the top dogs. These are the people who rule and reign over every aspect of Jewish life. There's no separation of church and state here. So, so as we piece together this context, this, this setting, here Jesus comes. He's coming again into the temple, right? He's coming into their temple. This is, this is their domain. This is their turf. This is where they rule, the chief priests and elders. And no one, no one acts without their authority. No one acts without their approval. And you certainly don't enter their temple and cleanse it as you see fit as Jesus did, right? In fact, Jewish historians will inform us that that at this time, in this place in history, a rabbi, those who taught, could only be ordained by this very group of chief priests and elders. And so these chief, who are now standing in front of Jesus, right? So if you can only be ordained by these people, in a sense, the question, who gave you this authority, is really a demand to see his credentials. Because we didn't approve you, so who did? But it's also more than a demand. Remember, Luke has said that they've plotted how to destroy Jesus. And so they're also setting a trap for Jesus as well. For on one hand, if Jesus claims his authority comes from God, they can accuse him of blasphemy. And on the other hand, if Jesus says my authority comes from man, Jesus would not only deny being a prophet from God, but he would also self-indict himself as one lacking rightful authority, right? So, so thinking they can trap Jesus, which is never a good idea, Jesus turns the table on these religious rulers. And he proves who actually possesses rightful authority in their temple. Verse 24. Jesus answers these religious rulers, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, excuse me, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe? You see how Jesus puts them in the same trap that they tried to put him into? And we can remember John, this referring to John the Baptist, like his testimony concerning Jesus, right? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So John the Baptist rightfully recognized Jesus as the Messiah, right? So, I mean, if they saw John as a prophet for God, then they would also have to believe Jesus was who he claimed to be as well. But if they said John the Baptist's ministry was from man, they know instantly that they would lose their credibility before the masses of the crowd, and they would actually rise up against them for all people at that time believed John was a prophet. So they answer in verse 27, right? They say, we do not know. We don't know. You see, religious rulers came to Jesus like looking for the knockout punch, right? But Jesus evades that blow and comes back with like a crushing uppercut and fully exposes the truth. And this is what's so crazy, is that these religious rulers, the ones who have been authorized to discern truth and render judgment, that's their job, is to discern truth and to render judgment. They're unable to judge the ministry of John the Baptist. And if they don't know if John was from God, why would we assume that they would be able to judge if Jesus was from God or not as well? You see, these, these rulers came to Jesus thinking and, and believing that they were going to silence Jesus and his influence over the people in their temple. But it's they who are silenced. And this is a powerful presentation of who actually has rightful authority. Because rightful authority over life, it's, it's never derived from any man-made institution of self-appointment as is the case with these religious rulers. There's only one in all of reality who possesses rightful authority in and of himself, and that's Jesus. Jesus is our rightful authority. And Jesus doesn't just leave the conversation here, though, does he? He continues. And he makes clear that there's a right way to respond to his authority, and there's a wrong way to respond to his authority. Which brings us to our second point, that we must, if we recognize Jesus' rightful authority, also have a right response. Verse 28, Jesus speaks again to them through parables, saying, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the first son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. It's a simple story, right? We got one son who initially refuses to obey, then regrets his decision, and then heads out to the vineyard. While the second son says, hey, I will obey, but then actually never follows through, right? And Jesus asks for their judgment, which is their job, right, to render judgment. In verse 31, Jesus asks them, uh, which of the two did the will of his father? And I grab a sense as I read through this text that these religious leaders are fairly excited to give an answer to Jesus that they don't feel is going to incriminate them. They don't huddle up here. They just, it seems like they respond pretty quickly in their answer. Unlike last time where they all like got in a huddle and like, what do you think? What do you think? Right? They just quickly respond at the end there, verse 31, and they simply say, the first son. The first son did the will of the father. You see, they're completely unaware that they actually are indicting themselves of a scandalous hypocrisy. For Jesus says in verse 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So what is Jesus saying here? That the chief priests and the elders, the highest ruling religious leaders of the day, were like the son who said they would go work in the vineyard, but actually don't follow through. As John the Baptist stood in the Jordan River preaching a message of repentance, did they repent? Were they able, these religious leaders, able to publicly acknowledge themselves as sinners? I want you to go back with me to chapter 3 of of Matthew, if you have your Bible in front of you. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, it's interesting to hear John's own words to these very same people. In Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is his more specifics of who these people are, as he saw these people coming to his baptism, John said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's quite a message. And isn't it interesting that three years earlier, John is basically saying the same things that Jesus is saying here in our text. He's saying, repent, for your profession of your mouth does not match the conduct of your life. You see, the, we have the, the highest ruling religious leaders fully ordained. Granted, it's self-ordination. They've re- ordained themselves, but nevertheless, ordained as representatives of God who fail to see the rightful response necessitated by God's rightful authority over their life. See, they offer much in ways of lip service to God, but Jesus uncovers their hypocrisy. And reveals their lack of obedience to the will of God the Father. And ironically, as I said at the beginning, it's the religious leaders who respond wrongly. And it's the known sinner. Actually, the scum of society who respond correctly. It's the prostitute. It's the tax collector. They're the ones who Jesus says are like the first son. Meaning it's the tax collector and the prostitute who go out to the Jordan. Who go out believing John's message and confess their sins. And sure, maybe when the prostitute and tax collector first heard that there was this crazy guy out at the river Jordan acting like a prophet saying, Hey, come and be cleansed from your sins through repentance because God's kingdom is coming. They, like the first son, no doubt, said, No, no thank you. That's, that's not for me. Maybe the tax collector said, Hey, I'm busy. I got to make some money here. And the prostitute maybe perhaps said, are you kidding? You want me to do something religious? You want me to confess before the whole world that I'm a sinner? And perhaps that night as the tax collector put his head on the pillow, he said, I've got to do something about my sin. My guilt is is crushing me. And perhaps the prostitute as well said as she went to sleep, I'm drowning in my sin and guilt. Is it possible that someone could make me clean? So as they rise the next morning, the tax collector and prostitute go to the river. 
confessing their sins, rightfully responding to the authority of God over their lives. And it's them, the scum of society, who Jesus says gains entrance into the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is these religious leaders, they despised these two pockets of people and actually would bar them from entering their temple. But they are the very ones who will be barred from entering the kingdom of God. That's a harsh reality. As I've thought about it this week, I've come to realize that these religious rulers are unable to extend any sense of mercy or forgiveness towards those very lowly members of their society because they themselves have not experienced the transforming power of God's mercy and forgiveness in their own life. See, they've they've puffed up their, their own illusion of goodness, vividly portraying an outward display of cleanliness or morality that they simply cannot see any need to to stoop down in repentance and faith. You see, religion never has and never will get you into heaven. Religion doesn't save you. As we turn this this text into our lives, I I found this thought by R.C. Sproul fairly profound. He said, it's often said that the church is full of hypocrites. No, the, the church is full of sinners. Only people who claim not to be sinners are hypocrites. He says, I know of no organization other than the church that requires members to, to publicly declare themselves to be sinners before they can join. And perhaps some of you here in person or online have been outwardly saying all the right things for many years. But deep inside, you recognize that you've not rightfully responded to the rightful authority of Jesus over your life. This is your moment to get real with God. For underneath this this, this potent, direct, and and unmistakable warning to the, the unrepentant hypocrite, there is an invitation. There's an invitation to rightfully respond, like the first son, to have a change of heart to do the will of the Father by repenting of your sins and to live a life that matches the profession of your faith. And for all who may feel like I am the scum of society, I hope and trust that you've heard this beautiful gospel message that God's grace is never conformed only to those whom the world approves. That's not true. For sin repented of can't keep you away from Jesus. Now is your time for repentance. To come to Jesus and to take his life. Amen? And for those of us who have confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives, recognizing him as our authority, we should allow this text to deeply marinate within our souls. For by calling out the hypocrisy of the religious elite, those who are supposed to have it all together, Jesus is saying that the actions of our lives, what we do and how we think, must match the profession of our mouths. And it's the hypocrisy of our lives which exposes the very extent by which uh, God's authority reigns over our life. The hypocrisy of our life exposes the very extent by God's authority reigns or doesn't reign over our lives. And as Christians, our line of authority 
must always begin and end with Jesus and his word. Not with me and what I think, but with what Jesus says in his word. And this is where it gets prickly. Because this is where it requires a level of trust. Like, like those on the spy team having to trust that their spy team leader is going to have their, the, the team's best interest in mind. That's a big leap of trust for these people. We also must trust that God has our best as well. And trust, as I've thought about this week, it, it can come fairly naturally and without much thought in lots of uh, realms of our lives where perhaps there's a lack of propensity to sin in, in, a, in, in a specific way or where it doesn't like cut across the grain of culture. Like our ability to rightfully respond to God's authority, it can come at times without much thought. It's, it can be a little bit easy, right? There's not much needed trust. For instance, for me, like God says it's a sin to gossip. Okay, that's cool. I, I don't really feel... Like I have a propensity to gossip, to speak poorly of others. I, I can deal with that, right? Or, or God says it's a sin to, to steal. Yeah, that's not a temptation for me. Like what is yours is yours, and I'm glad. Like that's, I'm good. I'm not going to do that. Or, or God says it's a sin to take his name in vain. No issue with that. I, I don't use that vocabulary. That's, that's cool, right? There's not a, a huge level of trust I need to trust what Jesus says here is, is good. And for my best. But a recognition of God's rightful authority in our lives also mandates that I will rightfully respond in the places and ways that are uncomfortable, that are challenging, perhaps because I do have a propensity to sin in this realm of my life, or in the ways that do cut across the grain of culture, where culture says one thing, but God's word says another. And this requires a great deal of trust. Meaning, in my own life, God calls the Christian to contentment. But you know what? I have a propensity for wanting more and more and better and more and more. I want a bigger house. I want a boat. We live in Madison. There's lots of lakes. I want more kids. I want greater ministry influence. And, a, and culture, you know, it, it goes along with my propensity here. It affirms through, you know, constant barrage of, of messaging that these desires, you know, have, I do need a bigger house. I, I do need a boat. I do need greater influence in my life to be uh, worthwhile, right? Or God calls the Christian to a particular sexual ethic. One man, one woman for life that, that sex is designed and purposed for within marriage. And if you know my story, I've shared it often, you know I possess an incredible propensity towards acting out in sexual sin. And, and culture affirms my propensity here. There's, there's the messaging that love is love, that, that sex has no greater purpose than for my own enjoyment. Or what about this? God calls us away from, from gluttony and to, towards like wise stewardship of the bodies that he's given to us. And for me to, to push away desserts, to, to, to establish healthy rhythms in my own life to honor what God has given to me, that's a challenge. I don't naturally go that way. And, and, and culture, while there is um, certainly this idea of fitness and, and, and whatnot, I get that, but there's also this messaging of immediate gratification as well. To embrace what I want, when I want it, how I want it. You see, 
where we lack a propensity towards sin or where there's a lack of feeling like we're cutting across the, the fabric of our cultural, rightfully responding to the authority of God, it it's, can be a little less resistive, can it? There's a little less trust. The cost is minimal. The cost is bearable. But where we find a greater propensity towards sin, where it goes completely against the grain of culture, and you have to answer that, rightfully responding to the authority of God is uncomfortable and challenging. And it can lead us oftentimes into compromise and into apathy or perhaps fear. And that only leads us straight down this murky river of hypocrisy where we see these religious leaders making a mockery of God, making a mockery of of what God says to be true. And friends, as we see in Matthew, we see that this murky river of hypocrisy actually leads to death and destruction. It's where the second son is headed unless there's a change of heart, unless it's met with repentance. You know, I don't know about you, but perhaps in your parents' home or grandparents, I think it's maybe a little bit older generation, like oftentimes there was a room in our house where you weren't allowed to go into, right? For me, it was my aunt and uncle in town, a large family, and very generous, hospitable people welcoming like literally like 50 people into their home, like very, very welcoming. But there was one room in their house where no one was allowed to go. And I don't know quite all what was in there. I was just a kid, and I know, like, I always tried to toe the line, right? I think there was a piano. I think there was, like, really nice furniture. I do know that there was, like, lines on the carpet. Like, it had been, you can see the vacuum lines. Like, it was pristine. And it was just known that nobody can go into this room. The whole rest of the house, feel free. Come on in. We welcome you. Your family, come in. Have and, and do what you, you know you, you, you want. But there's this one room that was off limits. And I think as we apply this text to our lives, we need to ask the question, do we allow Jesus and his authority over our lives to intersect and to come into every single room of our life? Or just the rooms where we feel comfortable? Or just the rooms that are going to portray Um, this outward sign of I've got it together. I'm actually a moral person. I've cleaned the front rooms, but there's a room in back, Jesus, that you're not allowed to come into. We need to allow this teaching of Jesus to sink deeply this morning. For our recognition of rightful authority necessitates a rightful response for every part of our life. The conduct of our life, how we think and how we act, must match the profession of our mouths. And anything less, we're no different than the religious leaders before us in our text. And where we fall short, we just repent. Like the first son. For where there's repentance, there is forgiveness. Hallelujah. The gospel's already outed you as a sinner. And Zach says this often, and I'm going to butcher it, but you have nothing to prove if you're a Christian, and you have nothing to hide. You're a sinner in need of God's grace. And a failure to repent is a failure to experience the transforming, redemptive work of Jesus in your life. 
because it's Jesus, not some self-appointed man-made institution who's the only one who will set you free, then you can have life abundantly. And in closing, this parable told of two sons, neither who fully or perfectly obey the will of the Father. And that bothers me a little bit. But there is another son. There is another son. A third son. Perhaps we should call him the first son, the only begotten son, the firstborn of all creation, the son who's actually the storyteller of this parable. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who said he would obey. And then afterwards, he obeys. It's Jesus who came to Jerusalem, entering the temple, not, not for the praise of fellow man, but knowing he'd sent there, been sent there by the Father for the purpose of dying a most terrible death. And he still goes. It's Jesus who says to his Father, not my will, but your will. It's Jesus who's sent into the Father's vineyard, into the world, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came for that wicked and rebellious son who defied his father to his face and said, I will not go. Jesus came for the sinner, the unrighteous, the one barred from the kingdom of God. Jesus came for that son, the hypocrite, talking the talk but not walking the walk. Entirely righteous on the outside but nothing more than a rotting body on the inside. Vine, it's Jesus who because of his obedience, even obedience to the point of death, that we have hope. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Jesus died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's an incredible warning in our text this morning, but also a profound hope. Jesus, we thank you that you offer a better way outside of ourselves. Lord, we praise you that you are the third son in this parable. Lord, we give you praise for a praise is due that you obediently follow the will of your father. Lord, we praise you that there is life evermore because of your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that as we experience your freedom, Lord, that when we um, as well carry this uh, this transforming mercy and love as we carry it into our everyday lives. That we would love and show mercy to those around us. Lord, I pray that we would allow this text to speak to us, to, to sink deeply. That we would, perhaps even now, just continue to ask ourselves, Jesus, am I allowing you into every part of my life? Lord, keep hypocrisy away from us. May how we think and what we do match the profession of our faith. May that be true of us as the Vine Church. In your name we pray. Amen.